listening to The 10 Podcast, the discovery and design channel in health. Tune in with me, your host Matt Patterson, to learn about insights from the world of healthcare today. This morning we're going to speak to Mark Hester from the Imagination Factory. The Imagination Factory and Mark do all kinds of innovative industrial engineering, from helping the real-life Ironman fly with his head-up display. They also have worked with me in healthcare and health tech-related solutions, and I'm really excited to bring Mark on the show this morning. If you could just introduce yourself, Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, for the audience. Sure, yeah, so I'm Mark Hester and um, co-founder and director of the Imagination Factory. We're a product design and creative engineering agency. Um, and alongside uh, having a strategy of, of doing design consultancy work for various different clients, that might be big companies, government departments, individual entrepreneurs. We also uh, try to spin up our own ideas. So we spend some time with our team uh, just sort of scratching where it itches. Uh, when you're a designer, you, you can't really help it. So um, we sort of spend time working on our own ideas internally and try to spin those out as um, businesses in their own right. And. With the COVID-19 coronavirus question in hand, what, from your perspective, because I know you've got decades of experience of making stuff, either prototypes and concepts or things for the real world in all different kind of complicated environments, so you've got a really good understanding of the whole system of design, development and production. Where is where is it, COVID-19, and where for you guys and your team and, and the people you work with? Yeah, it's interesting. So we, we've um, been talking about that a lot over the last few days in particular. There's been various things in the press. I'm sure you've seen the uh, article um, about the, the guys in Italy who were responding to the lack of ventilators by trying to 3D or 3D printing some parts. From our perspective, because we've done work in with medical devices in the past and often medical devices that are very very simple where they might just be ointment applicators uh you know really really benign and and not life critical um but we've known or experienced that even those quite rightly have to go through such stringent regulations and the whole it's not just whether something is made in a sterile environment, but the whole design process from the very beginning needs to be very, very carefully documented and every design decision needs to be justified and understood. So we, uh, yeah, we, we see a, a situation like this where there's suddenly a big demand for innovative solutions, uh, and, but, but we sort of feel a bit helpless, if I'm honest, because we know that it's unlikely that we're going to be able to just circumvent all those regulations that have been there for a very good reason because they're to make sure that the devices that help keep us healthy or, or even save our lives don't actually ultimately do harm. Um, but then at the same time, we also know that 
many many of the of the devices that, that especially the ones that are saving lives um such as ventilators they often originated in a in a in a crisis situation uh, maybe during a, a war zone a war situation or something like that and at the time they could have been the roughest sort of what we would call a rough and ready prototype made from bits of whatever that you could find lying around because you were just desperate to help save someone's life um so there's a there's a real uh, tension there between where the innovation often happens uh which is free from all these regulations um and where you end up when quite rightly you need a product that um operates safely and, and, and in a manner that's that's correct so I think we're yeah. I think we everyone keeps talking about being being in unprecedented times, and I think we are. But I don't know how that applies to the design process. So it's interesting with the government connecting with the big manufacturers. In the podcast yesterday, we spoke to Ben Mayer, talked about the 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 role of the maker community in relation to this, and the government seems to be engaging with the likes of JCB and Rolls Royce to alter their production lines. And and I don't know how they are doing that. It's beyond yeah. me with all our work we've done over the years. Um, yeah. But there's a whole community and army of designers who will be sitting at home with CAD with access to 3D printers, with loads of resource, just waiting to theoretically be able to help and be probably disconnected. 80% of the problem, of the national production capability and design capability have got nothing to do with these big organisations. So I wonder how, if we had a magic wand and we were trying to change the, help, the, help the government understand that and help the government connect those resources, what might, what might work? Yeah, well, I think you can probably draw some um, parallels with uh, some of the stuff that's been going on around um, uh, the, the the sort of response to climate crisis. So it's it's not the same in terms of that you know people. This what happens with this you know situation with a global pandemic is that the the dial gets turned up to 11, right? In terms of urgency and response. And you hear the government saying things like whatever it takes in press conferences so that the rhetoric changes. And it's not that we've got quite the same rhetoric, but there is definitely a growing response to climate crisis, which is shifting people into those sort of patterns of behavior. And I think the parallels that I would draw from that is where there's a lot of um, a lot of success that I'm seeing is through things like hackathons and also incubators that are being set up that not only tap into the, the, the startup mentality and the founder mentality and the entrepreneurial spirit, but also support them. So when you've got, uh, you know, I've been aware of, of many different hackathons and incubators that have tried to make a difference in uh, things related to climate crisis. But the ones that really have made a measurable impact are the ones where it's not just a bunch of people in a room uh, trying to come up with an idea by the end of the weekend without any sleep. It's the ones where they do that, but they also have people in the room who will pilot their ideas immediately, who will help them overcome whatever the regulatory requirements are and will fund them so i think the you know the interesting 
thing for me would be if the design community could come together with all with the other pieces of the puzzle that are needed you know there, there's uh, there's no there's no doubt there's people like us sitting here thinking what can we do we've already uh, contacted Bayes the, the government department for uh, business and enterprise and said you know is there anything we can do to help with the ventilator situation or, or anything else but it feels like um it feels like a bit of a blunt instrument because it's unlikely that anyone's going to see that email and respond to it. Um, so I think, yeah, it'd be interesting, especially now with the advent of digital platforms and, and the networks like the one that, that you, you've set up, this ability for people to come together. But we, it can't just be the minds, the, the, you know, the entrepreneurial, the creatives. Uh, it, it's going to have to be... Uh, yeah, everyone who can facilitate and actually make things make things happen overnight in some cases. It felt to me like there's a lot of stuff in there and there's a lot of untapped resource, but it needs someone to systemize it in relation to connecting those things to supply chain to production. So exactly. there may be people yeah. who can sit. Certain... I think you know that the maker community and the design community are are well placed for one section of that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've just been thinking back recently with, with all of the issue with masks and um, protective equipment. You know, in my, in my life as a designer and a model maker, I've done several projects that involved making prototypes of those kinds of equipment. And obviously those are, they, they weren't made in a sterile environment. Um, they were they weren't for that purpose. They were to demonstrate a new new design. But the I know how those things are made. I know how you get the materials for for a mask and the, the different layers and the different types. And I know how you can weld them together by hand. But I also know what you need in order to weld them with a machine uh, and actually you know we might need to figure out how to rapidly return to small batch production um, uh, and this you know this this could be this could be an opportunity for us to get our heads around that you know we've we've, we've been outsourcing all of our manufacturing or a lot of our manufacturing for a number of reasons uh, and then relying on a, a, a very what we now know is a very weak supply chain um, and effectively what we've done is is put our legs in one basket and and yet the often the the, 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 the means with which to manufacture things aren't nearly as complicated as as we might think at first and you only have to look at a site like instructables and you can find things on there that people have made out of necessity because they haven't wanted to buy something or they haven't had access to it. And then they, they, they go ahead and make their own. Um, so I think, yeah, there's no, there's no lack of um, creativity out there, uh, but it is, so part of it is incentive. You know, why, why would, why would I say, you know, I, I could right now, right here in the studio, I could probably buy all the, bits that I need to start making masks but why would I do that if I know I can't do it in a sterile way and um, you know there isn't an easy solution to, to that but uh, it might be that someone else can say oh don't worry about that because I've got the equipment to sterilize things afterwards 
Um, so, you know, you, and they might live just around the corner. So I think there's, yeah, there's a lot to be thought about in the whole system. This comes back to human-centered design. This, this, is, this response to COVID-19 has got to be a sy systemic response because um, it's, yeah, everything's involved. It, it seems to me that there are a, a number of design briefs that the government could put up that we could find out of healthcare systems what those design briefs are in relation to the requirements. There could almost be an audit of the healthcare system to say we're going to be short on X, Y, and Z. Yeah. There could be a list of design, but it feels like it needs systemization in some way from a governmental yeah. level, but not to solve the problems. But those briefs need putting up there, and then people get on and say, well, locally we could tackle that challenge. Yeah. And even hospital clusters, so I'm hoping to speak to some people um who run big hospital trusts and find out what their needs are because we just we don't know what the no, needs are at the yeah. moment and i don't know if they do and they'll be they'll be battling at the front of yeah. the war right so they're not going to see they, they've got no bandwidth to see some of the things yeah. that so much bandwidth is sitting behind screens like this in studios like yeah. yours in west london or down here or anywhere across the world yeah, where yeah. stuff can be stuff can be made and even if information passed digitally things produced locally like local factories rather than things produced mass produced in china and then yeah. shipped so the the whole supply chain opportunity for us because uh, this could go on I, I think if you this could go on for months and months and months and the worst yeah. case scenario is it could go on for more than a year right if this thing a new normal yeah exactly and i think i mean it recurs every five years and we actually it's not just we grit our teeth and hope it never happens you know it has happened and lots of people have been warning saying it's going to happen <clears throat> and actually what will i suspect what will come as a result of it is that we'll figure out a whole load of things that we should have done and things that we could have had in place if actually we had known it was inevitable but we did know it was inevitable it's just you know there's other priorities aren't there i mean it wasn't that long ago that everyone's talking about brexit it's it's very rare to hear someone at the moment talk about Brexit, mm. other than to say it's taking a back seat right now because mm. something more important. Um, but yeah, I think um, it's it. You know, we we um, we often get approached by people uh, wanting to design to design a new project product, and they uh, will quite often say, "Oh yeah, I'm planning to 3D print it." in manufacturing uh, you know and, and we've spent quite a bit of time over the last few years helping to re-educate um, the you know the people entrepreneurs and, and, and uh, sort of innovation managers from large companies coming to us with that expectation which I understand because you hear about it in the news all the time you hear about airlines or, or Boeing or whatever you know air, aircraft manufacturers 3D printing parts you hear about Formula One cars with a large percentage of, of, of 3D printed bits in them and you know the, the impression out there is that you can manufacture things uh, with 3D printing and that's true you can uh, but on the whole most products don't lend themselves to the specific performances or, or quirks that you get from a 3D printed part um, and there's a but there is a sort of a, a, a sort of a group of people um, who are really pushing the idea of additive manufacturing quite rightly because it has some definite advantages especially in a situation like this where you might need to rapidly design something and get it into people's hands uh, and 
the typical process of injection molding just doesn't respond that quickly. Uh, and, and I think what might come out of this is that people take that a bit more seriously. At the moment, it feels very much like additive, anyone who's pro additive manufacturing really has to fight a cause, you know, that, and, and there are niche sort of situations where you go, okay, yeah, that, that sort of makes sense. I can see why you would manufacture it in that way. But the traditional ways of manufacturing that are mostly outsourced to the Far East, they still, they still have the, the, the lion's share of it all. And I, and I think sometimes that's because it's the right way of making it. But I, I do sort of feel like the additive manufacturing people have, have had to sort of fight an unjust cause a little bit because we haven't taken seriously the, the, the other side of things, which is it's not just about making things in mass numbers to satisfy people's dubious consumerist tendencies. We actually need manufacturing to make things of importance and, and things that are needed for people's lives. And when traditional slow manufacturing doesn't meet that, then we should really elevate the, the importance of, of other methods. And so maybe that, that could be a good thing that comes out of this. But I think what we would need to do in that case is then, and, and the government could definitely help with this and, and conversations like you're saying with hospital trusts, if we understood what things need to be made at the drop of a hat and then not to satisfy consumer tendencies and then not really, they, you know, ventilators, we're talking about there's 5,000 in the country and as I understand it, if we had 10,000, we'd probably be okay. Maybe 20,000, you know, that's probably going to be enough. Uh, you know, that's not mass manufacturing. That's, that's kind of batch level manufacturing. And, and yet you want to be able to turn that on as and when you need it. You don't really need tens of thousands of them sitting around normally. Um, and it got me so yeah, I think there's a lot of thinking needs to go into that. So it'd be good just to talk for a couple of minutes about what is additive manufacturing, just for our audience, if anyone doesn't know, because there may be a lot of healthcare people that listen to this who don't understand additive manufacturing. Yeah. But also, yes, so, tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Well, it's, it's typically known as 3D printing, um, it is where most people would have heard of it. Uh, there's, there's effectively two kinds of manufacturing. One is called subtractive and one is called additive. And what that means is, uh, when you make something subtractively, you start with a big block of material and you use a big machine to take bits off of it, machine bits off of it. So you're, you're left with a cavity in that block. And then either that is your final part. In, in the case of a metal part, you might machine it away and, and that becomes your the base of your lamp. Or you use that machined cavity to then squirt hot plastic into and that makes your plastic part that might be the the lampshade something like that um, but additive manufacturing is where you're starting off with the material that is going to make the part and you you lay it down in in layers usually or sometimes it's a powder and you sort of stick the powder grains of powder together either way you're starting off with your material and you're building it it's it's more akin to the way that that, that nature builds things, you know, nature grows things. Um, so additive manufacturing is, is more like growing. <laughs> mm. um, 
So it has several advantages over the other form, which is it's much less wasteful of material. Um, and you can make shapes uh, that you couldn't otherwise make, which can be very helpful sometimes. Um, the disadvantage is on the whole, it's much slower um, because you have to literally grow each part. So um, yeah, that's where it tends to fall down. And sometimes the material properties are not quite up to to what you get from from the more traditional methods. Interesting. I know we've talked a lot about with the in here some of this manufacturing capabilities, but also we talked we touched on the human centered design principles. And I know you guys mm. have that as a core principle in relation to your design process. What what from that do you think is key in relation to how we tackle some of these challenges? Right, that's a really good question. So we adopt a human-centered design approach to all our projects because uh, fundamentally it's it's a way to manage the risk involved in innovation so um, to give a simple sort of example of that if, if we start designing a product for patients let's say it's a medical product and we're totally focused on the patient needs which are important and have to be considered obviously if we ignore the other stakeholders, if you like, the other people involved in the entire system that surrounds that product, then we will almost certainly run into some serious uh, problems with our design. So for example, if we were des designing something that requires a doctor to prescribe it, it, might be a medical device, but like an inhaler, but it needs a prescription from the doctor, then if we don't take into account the impact of our design on the doctor and they've only got 15 minutes uh, you know in, in, in an appointment to prescribe something and to have the conversation with the person if we make if we design something that makes that process really arduous and uh, and can't be done in 15 minutes then that product's going to fail uh, but you wouldn't necessarily think of that if you were just thinking, oh, it's in, in an inhaler, I need to make sure it fits the person's hand, is comfortable to use, fits in your bag, you know, all those sort of patient user-centered aspects. So human-centered design for us is about managing the risk of innovation and giving us a, a, a real deep understanding of how the product's gonna be used. And it's all about the context that it's in and the motivations and the needs of the various people along the way. So it's a very, it, it makes you take a step back and look at the whole system. And I think that is, uh, that's essential in, in responding to this. Uh, I don't know, I haven't really thought through how it applies in terms of a sort of an emergency response, which is kind of what we're in now, because generally, this is a bit of a tension for me. Human-centered design usually works best when you give it time. <laughs> so you you know you, you you allow time to gather insights, talk to people, um, and generally, where I've seen design go wrong is usually when certain things have been cut out, so corners have been cut, and often it's because there's a pressure from the need to market something or, or respond to a, a commercial need. And so the the more human-centered design side of it gets cut out. So I, I'm, I'm struggling internally to know how human-centered design res can respond in, in a crisis. Um, 
but I think what we what we can definitely do is 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 embed it in the response the longer term response to this and just a just a note on that um many of your listeners might not be aware of this but the uk government is very very supportive of innovation uh and there's a, a part called innovate uk and they have they, they fund um various bits of innovation in the uk through grants and provide all kinds of other support um, and the reason i'm mentioning it is because over the last couple of years they've placed a big emphasis on human-centered design so they are wised up to it and they are aware of it and they're actually making it a requirement in the early stages of projects that, that receive public funding so that that's encouraging for me because it it, it shows that um you know the powers that be are aware of its impact and, and its importance um and i think we need to sort of see more of that we we need to find ways to embed that and i know you do a lot of work with getting that embedded in in the health service and um digital health in particular so you know i think that needs to happen more and more but we need to extend extend this into the supply chain and into the manufacturing i think that's the critical thing uh, that hasn't happened. I think. And I think what we've seen is we have a different system design today than we had two weeks ago. We have hospitals turning from fifty bed ICUs to three hundred bed ICUs. We have practitioners who are trained to do one kind of medicine being expected to do another kind of medicine and flip their skills to things that they've not done for many many years. Probably where you get generic doctors who are specialists, perhaps. So there's a whole range of things the design challenges that would change that would that would blow our mind if this was a normal commercial project being done for a company to be released in the world two years from now, three exactly. years from now, yeah. five years from now, ten years from now in the reality yeah. of medical devices. So I think that we have like a blank slate ahead, and I, and I and I really think that it's, uh, I learn a lot from that. The comments you make on on often when it gets cut corners get cut things go wrong. Um, and then we have the chat, the very agile development challenge of what expectations are now to make things work very quickly. Um, yes. So the yeah. so there may be I don't know what your thoughts on or whether we need to put in some way ceilings on what we might be expected to do and help quickly things that perhaps don't kill people. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I think that's it. I, no. I, well, I think there's there's two things there. Uh, it's interesting because whilst. I, I think what I, when I'm talking about corners being cut, I'm actually referring to the design process as opposed to the process of product development from a commercial point of view. So I absolutely 100% agree with how much faster things can be done using an agile process. And that really is in comparison with the way that industry quite, and, and institutional bodies quite often move normally uh, you know in some of these government grant funded projects that we've been involved in um, the the normal thing for us to hear is is how have you managed to do so much in the last quarter you know we're just moving at our normal pace as a, as a design company because you're used to solving problems very very quickly on the fly uh, but you then are working alongside large institutions and bodies and and, and corporate companies who have to jump through so many hoops and and they are genuinely surprised when you can 
come up with new ideas, develop a new product to the point of demonstrating that it will work in, in a matter of months. Like you said, they, they, they have innovation programs that last year. It's, it's the bit after that that, from my point of view, takes time in the design process. It, it's the sort of, you, you can get the initial insights and then you can start working on them. Um, and you don't want to cut those bits out because that's when things really go wrong. But then later on, there's, yeah, there's, it, it's where it's where we then have to manufacture things and get them into the supply chain. That's when things are, yeah, are, are, are much slower than they perhaps need to be. Um, so okay, so so, yeah. so if we were in a world where we were going to take some of these insights, so imagine there's a lot of insights to be had at the moment going on left, right, and centre in hospital yeah. trusts, <laughs> in yeah. a fascinating time. Um, and if we got those insights and got them out to companies like yours at the Imagination Factory and companies across the UK, let's say, just even in the world we're thinking at the moment, local yeah. local design and manufacturer, how would yeah. how how would that how how would that work for you? How does Imagine How could you help? What would you need? What do you guys need to be doing to help? So um, what we would uh, want to do is to be able to yeah with with those insights to be able to um, go back and see where they came from and um, uh, and really kind of get under the hood of them. And then we would want to be able to get the right people together in, in a room. Um, would they have to be in a room or could they be digital? Right, okay, in a digital room, yeah. Get, <laughs> get people in a digital room. Uh, and, and actually, this, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, that um, we do gen- genuinely normally obviously right now is, is an exception to this, but we would normally advise people do get together in a physical room because there are different dynamics that happen. If you're trying to come up with solutions to things and you, human-centered design really encourages us to get a multidisciplinary team together and co-create um, ideas. And the reason for that is because there are dynamics that happen between people um, that, that you can lose through a, a screen like we have now uh, even just physically putting stuff up on a, on a whiteboard and bouncing ideas off so that's made me think recently that maybe this is the opportunity for virtual reality to to, to, to step up to the plate because you know there's been a lot of talk in the last few years and people have trialed things and it's not quite worked and there's but the things that seem to have received a lot of positive response are where they've enabled people who are at a you know, physical distance from each other to feel like they're in the same room. So if you're wearing a VR headset and you have a co-creation workshop where you're all seeing the same whiteboard and you can all write things up on it and stick post-it notes on it, maybe at the same time you can go on the internet and, and grab a little video and you can stick it on the wall as well. I know these things do exist in, in virtual reality, but they're not widely used. Um, and they're not widely used probably because they're prohibitive but if you imagine um, being able to do that uh, and then that, that would be amazing to for, for us to be able to get experts in the field you know if it was doctors managers of hospital trusts um, caregivers to be able to actually get them all together um, albeit virtually but you know that that sort of has its own challenges in terms of the availability of headsets and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but what we would do to come back to your original question <laughs> um, is, I think we would really want to look at those insights from a from a system level. So 
just a, a really simple example. You're talking about local manufacturing, um, and in the in the case of hospitals, if we take that ventilator example, uh, that the the Italian guys who who run that fab lab or that you know the, the, the sort of maker space where people typically are doing it for a bit of a hobby, you know, they got to a certain point and then they had to go into the hospital with the 3D printer on a Saturday night and alongside the doctors, they then made some bits and the doctors oversaw the the aspects of sterility. So making sure that bits were made in a way that they were happy with, um, which is really interesting because then actually what you're talking about is the hospital itself maybe needs the ability to manufacture. Um, but you wouldn't have doctors manufacturing, but you start to, you know, we, we would start to look at things like that, like, well, how, how much space unused is there in hospitals across the UK normally? Um, how many rooms are left, you know, that there's storage cupboards with stuff in them that no one's touched for 20 years? It, if you gave that to someone who can run a small makerspace within the hospital, could you actually manufacture things required by the hospital uh, in a way that passes um, the sterile requirements. Uh, but you'd need the right people to answer those questions there and then in order to, uh, to, to find that out. So I think those are the kinds of things that would be really interesting rather than looking at, you know, we could focus very much on an individual valve or a, a little part that we could make, but I, that's not it. We, we'd need to what we'd need to do is take is to take a big picture, zoom out, and and also we'd need to do this um, at, a, at a vast level. So it might be that almost every design consultancy or every design department of university or every designer who's freelance needs to somehow be drawn into a, a working group. Maybe the government needs to figure out that these people can be drafted in one day a week for a year and, and you know kind of take a hackathon to the next level <laughs> kind of hackathon mentality um but systemize it and um yeah almost at a national level i mean we look at things like delivery and their dark kitchens right so they've taken a different production model away from a standard kitchen-based production model and made it work there's almost that you could have something like that going on in hospital trust. So now you'd want them on site, but you it's like if you can move hospitals around where they can make 50 ICU beds to 300 ICU beds in a number of weeks and you've got testing facilities on site, you could utilize other production facilities on site because they can turns out they can do miraculous things when pressure comes on. And it's like if that purity needs to be done on site, you just drop material off, I guess, on site and then you'd have people working there doing production on whatever you became short of and it might seem like fanciful to ever imagine that but it but it's it isn't beyond the realms of possibility just like COVID-19 isn't beyond the realms of possibility to get us here in the first place yeah and, and obviously that's just an idea I've plucked out yeah that, that's not I'm not suggesting that is yeah. a, a good solution but those are the sorts of things that would be worth looking at and uh, you know and at a much higher level I mean Every hospital has a maintenance department. They already do, you know, well, they might outsource a lot of it nowadays, I suppose, but they probably still have someone on site who can fix, repair, or at least understand why something's broken. 
Um, so yeah, I think that's yeah, that's that's a, it's just looking at things at a, a system level, but applying design thinking to how how we respond. Uh, yeah, how we respond to it. It's interesting. I see these biomedical engineers with production labs going on, where they're just fabricating stuff and they're mending their parts on site, rather than these contracts they have to do off site with manufacturers to sign up for years. I guess there's a big legal side of all these things as well. So we're going to have to look at relaxing perhaps some of the legalities for society's right. sake. Or, or yeah, yeah, relaxing or or whatever the right word is uh, you know you still need the you still need the protections for the general public but you know that these aren't also these aren't um these aren't roads that haven't been traveled already in in maybe in niche situations so i'm i'm aware of a hospital uh near to me where um uh we we used to actually get 3d printed parts from that hospital and the reason was that um, they had uh, a spin-out business that had uh, been set up to make um, jigs, drilling jigs or surgical jigs for orthopedic surgeons. So on site, they would have access to 3D data about the, the fracture. Um, and then the orthopedic surgeon, together with, with a team of, of, of specialists, would design a jig that would be used by them in surgery to make sure that the various bone screws went in straight so that the plate would would fit and hold uh, and give the best possible result for a nice straight bone fixture and that company was set up actually it was on on the eighth floor in in this hospital uh, and they had a state-of-the-art 3D printer, one of these ones that makes things from nylon powder, and it was making jigs that were being used in the hospital. So they've they've worked out how to manage all of these issues of sterility and things being made properly. And it just so happened that I knew them, and that I knew that their capacity on their machine was never full. So occasionally, I'd need a part very very quickly. And I would ring them up and send them the data. They'd stick it on the machine, and I would literally cycle past the hospital in the morning because it was on my way to work. And I'd pick up the bits. It was incredible. It was overnight um, manufacturing <laughs> being done in my local hospital, uh, and actually, I was using it for just regular design projects. Um, so these things are happening. These, th- you know, you, it's it's unearthing them and finding out uh, where. Things have already been done sometimes for a different reason. You know, they, they weren't making those in the hospital because they needed to. Uh, it actually made sense, um, and, and it made commercial sense as well. And they could control the sterility of the part that they were making. So, so there may be in hospitals chief execs and op- chief operating officers who can step back and look around and say, well, what do we actually have on this system? And can some of these things be reutilized and repurposed, just like you're repurposing all these other people's times, the job design, the environments, the organizations? I'm sure they're doing that. But perhaps maybe maybe they maybe they're not maybe that's not being considered yet. And if it is, it sounds like there's a real possibility. Yeah. I think the other aspect of it is, you know, a lot a lot of the regulatory side um, when it comes to medical devices quite rightly is around the electronics and the the issue of interference and this is often the part that really slows down um, a, a project when it's 
going from the sort of early make it, test it, does it work, to them wanting to do trials uh, in a clinical environment. Um, and we come up against this all the time because you need to make sure that, that what you're wanting to trial isn't going to A, cause harm to the person that you're trying it with, but also have any unintended consequences around you. Um, but I, I wonder whether some of those regulations again relaxed is the wrong word but i wonder whether some of those regulations are still stuck in a time way before where the technology is now so to take an example we know we can use our phones on planes nowadays uh in in the in the beginning you weren't allowed to use the, the, the phone because the mobile phone was going to interfere with the equipment and the plane was going to fall out of the sky etc etc now we're not supposed to have them on during takeoff uh, and landing, but you know you can get Wi-Fi on on the on planes now. Um, so clearly, there isn't an issue like we thought there was. And in the same way, a lot of innovative uh, responses to to things are using open source electronics and open source um, uh, sort of. Uh, modules or, or development boards, if you like. M most people do it that way now when they when they first start developing a new product, uh, and then eventually they have to get some certified electronics made and, and all the rest of it. But most of those modules, well, all of those modules, have gone through their own certification process in the first place. And when if you bolt them all together, um, in theory, they should still be okay. But that's at the moment, that's not acceptable. If you if you bolt these things together, you you still might have done something in the process of bolting them together that could cause some interference and make a you know a, a machine shut down in a hospital. So you can't really just walk in with some bits that you've bought off the internet and try things. But I think that kind of mentality might be able to be looked at, and it's not about relaxing the regulations, but applying them in the right places. Um, so if we wanted to test uh, some sort of product with a, a bit of electronics in it, you wouldn't want to walk into an operating theatre with it maybe, but it might be fine to go onto a ward uh, and it might be that, that we can accelerate uh, the way things are done and, and that new devices are developed that way. I mean, thank you very much for this conversation of the last hour and it, it's been so interesting in relation to considering the system design elements and how we might rethink a lot of the factors that are currently taken as red today for a new tomorrow and, and I'm always glass half full in relation to these things we're in incredibly challenging times but sitting at the front end of innovation there are lots of things that may come out of the back of this that may be better that may be more effective that may be more protected well my, my approach to that is um, you know that some people are glass half empty some people are glass half full the design engineer says why did you make a glass that was half the size it needed to be in the first place uh, so yeah i think you're right we, we we can learn a lot of lessons uh from this that hopefully make things better in the future on that great note thank you so so much for your time i'm uh, really looking forward to getting this out there and hopefully get some perspective from the medical guys out there in relation to looking around their hospitals have you got a 3d printer sitting out there waiting to be used have you got innovations going on within your hospital trust that you think could be repurposed in those environments and then the next question is how can we get this army of individuals who can help out there governmentally supported um government supported to 
make use of all this talent and capability to solve some of the problems that are coming in the post. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for speaking today and speak to you soon. You're welcome. See ya. Bye. Thank you, Mark. That was Mark Hester on the podcast today, uh, talking about the wider systemic challenges that face the design and production world, as well as the considerations for those at the coalface around COVID-19 today. Um, If you'd love to come on the podcast, then please do email me, hello, at weare10.co.uk. Stay safe out there, thinking of all of you guys in social isolation and an actual lockdown. Until we speak next time on the pod, have a great day.